Coming up next, spooky, scary, Halloweeny, something wicked this way. What, Brandon? Comes. <laughs> Welcome to the bookening, everyone. A very spooky bookening. I assume we just heard Takata and Fugue in D major. Or no, <laughs> not D major. And we're off uh, with Takata and Fugue in D minor, I assume is what we just heard. I'm sorry if it wasn't a good version. I have to go with public domain stuff. I can't afford to just buy a good version of Takata and Fugue in major for the bookening, folks. Maybe one day, maybe if you support our Patreon page, go to patreon.com and support it. But in any case, you gotta love Takata and Fugue in D, D major. What I love is the second part after the da-da-da. Everybody loves the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But the stuff that comes after that, sadly, underappreciated part of Takata and Fugue in D minor. Minor. Your thoughts, Jake? I have no opinion about that. You don't have any opinion about it? You don't like the... I just don't, you know, underrated, overrated. It's never really occurred to me to think that way about it. Brennan, your thoughts? I had never really thought of it either, Nathan. And <laughs> You're yet, always one step ahead of us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, just like Mr. Dark. In Something Wicked This Way Comes, oh boy, in Something Wicked This Way Comes, the book that we'll be reading today, that's why we heard the creepy music, it's Halloween, and I'm joined by my uh, very, two uh, very spooktacular fiends of mine, as I like to say, uh, my, my best fiends in the whole wide world. First of all, over there in the corner, we have the pastor who's a master of bleeding. <laughs> True Pastor story. Jake, <laughs> men's killer. How you doing there, Jake? It's good. <laughs> I'm I'm bleeding. You're bleeding. <laughs> Master of bleeding. Master of it. <laughs> well, maybe you cause others to bleed. Uh, Brandon, I think you need to talk a little bit more into the microphone. He's a master of it. <laughs> there, there we go. All right, and over there, uh, Jake, how you doing? You feeling appropriately spooktacular as we enter into my favorite month? Everyone's favorite month, the month of October. October. Yeah, there's a chill in the air. <laughs> chill in the air. You bobbed for any apples yet, my friend? No. Got your Halloween costume. Walked Doom. out under a full moon to the rustle of leaves. Have you walked out under the full moon to a rustle of leaves? Yeah, there's leaves rustling around and there's a full mm, moon. There you go. Nice. How'd you I feel? Did you feel? I felt I spooked out. I spooky felt spooked out <laughs> by leaves. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you know who else is here? And you'll appreciate this as the pastor who's a master of bleeding. <laughs> who's Brandon Chastfiend. <laughs> oh, the scholar who's a mauler. Of bleeding! <laughs> There's not really any other reading-related horror puns that I could come up with besides bleeding, I think, so... Yeah. But you're the ba- the scholar who's a baller of bleeding. I hey. am, indeed. <laughs> Is it a baller or a mauler? Did mauler. You? The yeah. mauler, yeah. yeah. Is it of books? What? Spooks? Spooks? Sp- spooks? Spooks? spooks. <laughs> spooks. <laughs> the who's a mauler of books. <laughs> <laughs> He's the scholar. Okay, we'll do spooks. He's the scholar who's a mauler of spooks. <laughs> doesn't work as well. <laughs> doesn't really work as well. Do the bleeding. You're the mauler of bleeding. You're joining you for the spookening. I don't know. I'm sorry, folks. It's hard to come up with Halloween-related puns. You know what? If you come up with a good Halloween-related pun, send them to me on the, the Twitter. Maybe I'll use them this next year. Or, I don't know. Just, Brandon, how do you, uh, how do you feel? About Twitter? <laughs> About the creepy month of October and Halloween. You like Halloween? You Halloween? Your family celebrate Halloween? You're more of a Reformation Day kind of a guy. We celebrate Halloween. You celebrate Halloween. Yeah. That's right. We do. Sacrifice a goat in your backyard. You. <laughs> no. We don't go that far. <laughs> you don't sacrifice a goat in your no, backyard. We, we draw the line at goat sacrifice. You draw the line. We draw the line <laughs> at goat sacrifice. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad to hear that. It's always a sentence that I like to hear a man say. He draws the line at goat sacrifice. That's right. Do you celebrate Halloween? You get you get a sheet. You cut some some holes in it. You, yep. you go as a ghost. That's right. Every year. Every year. <laughs> All by myself. All by myself. <laughs> <laughs> you just knock on <laughs> Yeah. You know what you could do? You could pretend to be two kids standing on each other's shoulders. I could. 
you just be like, hey, mister. And then you could stick an arm out that was kind of up through the top. Yeah. What do your kids do while you're going out alone for trick and trick or treating? They stay home and hide in the closet. <laughs> celebrate the Reformation. Yeah, celebrate, celebrate the Reformation. Celebrate that's the right. Reformation. They sing a lot of hymns. <laughs> sing a lot of hymns. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then I come back and I eat my candy while they watch. <laughs> I can have, I have a little respect. I'm going to go on record here. Uh, maybe we'll even do an episode of Sound of Sanity about this, but. I, I, I'm going to go on record. I have respect for people that celebrate Reformation Day. I do not have pe- respect for people that celebrate Harvest Day. Super lame, Christian, like the most vanilla, fake. Like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Is that about. a thing? Yeah, it's a thing. Like you, you, people that don't, like and none, you guys are obviously good Reformed folks. You appreciate Tulip and John Calvin and all the rest. But for people that don't appreciate such things, they obviously don't celebrate Reformation Day. But obviously they're Christians, so they can't do Halloween. What they do is something called Harvest Day, where you go trunk <coughs> or treating and you have, you have a bunch of people's trunks and they have candy in them and you go around. Huh. And, so it's like the vanilla fake ce- Halloween celebration? It's vanilla fake Halloween celebration. Ah. Do they dress up in costume? Yeah, you know, these are pirates and so they celebrate Halloween. <laughs> Basically. Okay. But they don't, do they don't, you know. Well, I mean, at least you're not calling it Halloween. Right, you know, yeah. this is the important thing is that you don't call it Halloween. Because <laughs> anyway, you guys ready to talk about something wicked? This way it comes. Ray Bradbury's immortal tale of, uh, what does it say on the front of your book there, Brandon? I'm sure it says something. The Dark Fantastic. <laughs> what is this? The something something of the dark? The incomparable masterwork. Oh, the incomparable masterwork. You cannot, you cannot compare this thing to nothing. You guys ready to talk about the incomparable masterwork of the Dark Fantastic? I don't know how we're going to. We can't compare it to anything. <laughs> oh, I forgot to say, I'm, I never said. I can't believe it. I'm your humble and obedient ghost, <laughs> Nathan Alberson. <laughs> All right, let's talk about something wicked this way comes. You guys ready? Let's do it. All right. Yeah. So, how are you guys enjoying this October? Weather? Yeah, how are you enjoying this October weather? That's great, Nathan. <laughs> Tell me about it. Crisp autumn wind. What's that sound? Yeehaw! It's the spooky sound of a. Oh, yeehaw! <laughs> it's the spooky sound of a, a zombified Texan. Yeehaw! <laughs> <laughs> the contextual Texan, of course, is the part of the program where Brandon gives us some context, which is what he's about to do. Some context on the great Ray Bradbury's, arguably his greatest novel, Something Wicked This Way Comes. Take it away. Oh, Brandon, you should probably, because sound effects are something that people enjoy, you should fire your pistols in the air. There you go. Wow. They were extra spooky this time. Did you notice that? Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) I take it away, Brandon. Some context, if you please. All right. Let's talk about Ray Bradbury. Ray Bradbury. So we'll start with his biography. How's that sound? That sounds like a... What we do every typical way we do things (laughs) here. (laughs) We have a format. Yep. Ray Bradbury. He was born in 1920 and died in 2012. Born in 1920, died in 2012. That makes him how old, Jake? In three, two, one, go. 92. Whoa, he was old. He was old. I've got up here a a story that was recommended to me, Touched with Fire. Touched with Fire, yes. By a good friend of ours. Mm -hmm. One one who may well appear on the bookening very soon. Yeah, one a a member of My Soul Among Lions. Mm -hmm. Just a little bit of a teaser there. Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) So Ray Bradbury, 92 years old, and then he popped off this mortal coil. He did. He was born into a middle-class family. His father was a salesman of some sort. Right. Um, They moved. He, He was born in Illinois. I did not write Illinois. Illinois. Ooh, I'll stop with the Halloween times now. What was the name of the city? Does anybody remember Winkeska or something? Uh, like that? Yeah, Wachowski, Wachensi. Something. But it would become the inspiration, just like Faulkner's hometown and some of these other authors we've seen. It would be the inspiration for his made-up town of Green Town. For Bradbury's made-up town of yeah. Green Town. Yeah, yeah. Which would be the central town in. Something Wicked, Dandelion Wine, wine, at least one more. So just some little uh, trivia notes. He was related to a witch. Well, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) He was related to a lady who was uh, tried, and I don't know if she was killed, but she was tried in the Salem Witch Trials. My Um, midwife. Mary Bradbury. Was a witch. witch. What? My, my, uh, not my midwife. My, uh, what do you call those ladies that help you be born? Midwives. Yeah, but there's another word for them. Doula? Yeah, yeah. My mom had a doula. Uh, they actually canceled her before she she done birthed me because it turned out that she was a practicing witch. Huh. She used to ride around on a broomstick, or so the story goes. Oh, there you go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he 
He was born in. Pretty interesting, huh, Brandon? Oh, yeah. He was Adula, born. or as I like to call her, Agula. Agula. Yeah, I was with you there. <laughs> all right, Brandon. I'm sorry, I'll stop interrupting. I'm going to try to guess all of your um, puns. He was, <laughs> all right. he was born in Illinois. They moved to Phoenix, Arizona for a while, but eventually they ended up in Hollywood, and he grew. He was enamored of it. He would... I think rollerblade <laughs> down the road to try and see celebrities. Do they have rollerblades back in the Surely weren't that old. Surely, they, I, mean, I don't know. He would do something, maybe skateboard. Skateboard. Were skateboards that old? I don't know. Hoverboard. <laughs> Nathan's hoverboard, got yeah. the computer. Nathan, hoverboard. Why, don't, why don't you use that Wikipedia and tell us yeah. when rollerblades were invented? It's probably on Wikipedia, yeah, that I saw that anyways. So we, we have to have Wikipedia in every episode now, apparently. What'd you say? So we have to have Wikipedia in every episode. Oh, yeah. Some guy on Twitter was saying, good jobs using... Wikipedia in every sure. podcast that you oh that we uh, ask Wikipedia 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 <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna lay down and take a nap <laughs> y'all are done okay me up. Uh, <laughs> well yes we do use Wikipedia and it's an easy source Wikipedia is if a good tired of listening to the bookening and uh, just, you just want to read a book and know what Brandon would say you can just go to Wikipedia, is that yeah. what you're trying to say? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. Wikipedia. <sighs> Not everything I say comes from Wikipedia. 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 <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm just trying to stuff more I'm Halloween gonna, puns. I'm just going to lay down and sleep here. <laughs> Wicked Bledia. Oh, there we go. That's much better. <laughs> Wicked. All right. <laughs> Wicked Bledia. Wicked Bleed Die would be the most. Wicked Bleed Die Young. <laughs> Wicked Bleed Die Scream. <laughs> die Anya. Die Anya. Bleed Die. <laughs> There you go. Yeah, I think we've managed to stuff the maximum amount of Halloween puns. We have wicked, bleed, die. Ah! <laughs> anyway, so he was enamored of Hollywood. We don't know if he rollerbladed. <laughs> I have this guy who. I'm sorry, my all about Wikipedia. Trying to log into the um, uh, die fi here, and I'm having some trouble. Um, okay. He started writing from a young age, um, spent a lot of time in libraries. In fact, there were the Carnegie libraries. Have you ever seen these before? They're all over the place. The Carnegie Foundation gave money to counties, and they would build these libraries. We actually have them all over Indiana, and um, they're fairly nice limestone buildings. Anyways, I, I liked that fact. It said on Wikipedia. <laughs> I'm going to keep rubbing that in. Look at Wicked Die... Wicked Diepedia. <laughs> wicked Die Bleed... Bleed... Yeah. Some of his favorite writers, he read a lot of Wells, Verne, Poe. At the age of 17, he got into reading the uh, Pulp Fiction magazines at the time, which was called Astounding Science Fiction. And he has a quote here from a non-Wikipedia source. Oh, very nice. I'll start just noting every time I have a non-Wikipedia <laughs> source. This is from an interview. Brennan, I'd like to just interrupt you real quick to say yeah. he roller skated. Oh, that's what I said. You said rollerbladed. Oh, rollerbladed. Rollerblades weren't available until our our, our day, I think. Okay, so he roller skated. Mm-hmm. That's what I meant, probably. I'm glad we got that sorted out. <laughs> I'm glad we got that. Anyway, you had a quote. I'm sorry to inter- interrupt. I started reading books in the library when I was seven years old. I lived in the library until I was 12, and then I fell so in love with books. Finally, I decided to become the writer. I kept going to the library and educating myself. I never went to college and went to the typewriter and wrote every day of my life. For 20 years, I went to the library two or three times a week. This gave me an education and became the Ray Bradbury that you know. So he actually was pretty down on a typical college education, very up on the kind of education you can just get from going to a library three days a week and reading lots and lots of books. And that's what he did. That was his training. As I said, he read a lot of Wells. He read a lot of Verne. He read a lot of Poe. He also had... A fairly broad taste in some of the modern writers. He read uh, Catherine M. Porter, I think, was one of his favorites. <laughs> Eudora Welty, some of these Southern writers who were, I guess, more avant-garde, at least more highbrow than people typically give Ray Bradbury credit for. Because as we'll talk about, he's more, I guess he's kind of in between King, Stephen King, the more pulp popular writer mm-hmm. and the more serious writer. Yeah. I think he's situated somewhere in between those. Yeah. I don't know that critics have quite figured out what to do with him because he's... Yeah, well, we'll talk about that more, perhaps. But Yeah, well, he started his career by contributing to what were called fanzine magazines. And these were basically uh, exactly what they sound like. They were they the were, internet before the internet. Yeah, I'm trying to think what they call those uh, stories that are based on something else. 
Oh, uh, fan fiction. Fan like, fiction, yeah, yeah. that's it. I don't know why that was so hard for me to remember. <laughs> but he wrote basically fanfic for a while until finally at 22, he did sell his first story. 24, he became a full-time writer um, and pr- published Dark Carnival, which was a series of short stories. Published, and- if I may, through Arkham House, which was a small imprint developed by August Durleth, who was the, uh, oh, what do you call him? He was the... Um, Oh, what do you call like a guy that comes after a guy and he comes after a great guy? Not a successor, but like there's a guy like John Calvin wrote a bunch of great stuff, but then a guy came after John Calvin and he kind of synthesized a lot of it and did his own take on it. And a lot of people know it. Better example is more like Luther and Melanchthon, probably. That's that's what I was actually thinking of is Melanchthon. What would you call Melanchthon? He's his job. Protégé. Yeah, but his it's like. Melanchthon's not important except for insofar as he helped to spread Yeah, Luther. so Luther exists and he's a big blunderbuss and he, he's fighting on all kinds of fronts and Melanchthon comes along and he sort of, yeah, synthesizes and tries to produce some kind of systematic... A proselyte? Yeah, I don't know what the word is, but this guy, his name is August Derleth. He took the great H.P. Lovecraft, who everybody agrees is the most influential horror fantasy, kind of a uh, dark fiction writer of the 20th century. He took H.P. Lovecraft's work and he synthesized it and made a mythos out of it and created a small publishing imprint to publish it and uh, really kept Lovecraft alive and is responsible for a lot of Lovecraft's enduring legacy. But he also published Ray Bradbury's first collection of short stories called Dark Carnival, which is a wonderful collection of stories, no longer really available uh, because it was just a small print run. But later, Bradbury would revise it, kind of take out some of the tackier horror stuff, make it a little bit more classy, and release it as the October Country, which, fun fact, is my favorite collection of Ray Bradbury short stories. So uh, you can still read most of the best stories from Dark Carnival in the October Country, but you can't read Dark Carnival because it's no longer in print unless you can find it for 500 bucks on eBay or something like that. Wow. Sounds like you should be doing this. <laughs> I think we have a true fan over here. I think we got a fanboy. I'm going to be a true fan. Uh, I'll talk about that more later, but go on. And no, we're not to baggage check yet. Are we? Yeah, we're not to baggage check yet. Huh. So, we're, oh, Dark Carnival. The one and only Truman Capote was responsible for him basically hitting it big. He pulled out one of his stories, Homecoming, from what was called the slush pile at the time. So this was a period of history where you had these, well, like I said, you had this one journal here. What was it called? The astounding science fiction, but you also had the rise of stuff like the New Yorker, and you had the rise of the the Atlantic. These other journal, the Sewanee Review, where people would send short stories, and you would get published, and they would make you famous. They were the brokers of fame. Yeah, and, and so like you know, so the Southern Review, the Sewanee Journal, those those they're the ones who made Flannery O'Connor famous. Um, the New Yorker made guys like John John Updike famous, and then you had in the realm of science fiction, you had stuff like this, astounding science fiction. Mm-hmm. You would send your stuff. You would hope that they would pick it up and publish it. But often your stuff would just get thrown into another big pile. And this is apparently still how it works. It's just more like a spam filter. Right. So if you send something to the New Yorker, if you've ever done anything like that. I send pieces to the New Yorker all the time. Yeah, most likely they'll print it off and they'll put it in what's called the slush pile. If they're ever running low on stories, they'll send some lowly person or occasionally a Truman Capote, I guess. We'll go and they'll dig through it and maybe they'll find something. He found... Homecoming. Published it, and it won the O. Henry Award in 1947. There you go. I found this interesting because in Something Wicked This Way Comes, there's that whole portion on coincidence where actually Mr. Dark, it's his, where he's referencing Charles Dickens. Right. And says that you boys like Charles Dickens. He was all about coincidence. So it seems like, and you see this often with authors in their early stages, but especially I think with Bradbury, that it's a lot of coincidence happens to get him to where he was. I read that he ran in, into Isherwood, Christopher Isherwood, who wrote the Berlin stories. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen the movie Cabaret, which you probably shouldn't have seen it, but if you saw the movie Cabaret, that's based on the Berlin stories. Yeah, he ran into him and he put, I think, the Martian Chronicles in his hand and that's yeah. responsible for yeah. giving a really good review. Truman Capote happened to see his story on the top of a slush pile. One of the universities, it might have been, where was he? It might have been UCLA. I'm not sure. Had typewriters for rent for fairly cheap. So he was able to go and use those and for like $9.80, write his first book that would become Fahrenheit 451, mm-hmm. which was what would make his career was this book Fahrenheit 451, which, you know, I think in this room we have mixed feelings about that book. But. Do we have mixed feelings? Does anyone like Fahrenheit 451? Have we all read Fahrenheit 451? Do you like it, Jake? Well, I remember Define read. Back when I was first married and training for ministry, I was also working as a commercial painter in Indianapolis. I would read or listen to audiobooks. I don't remember what version this was, but I had, I listened to Fahrenheit 451 and I was not a huge fan. 
Yeah, I'm not a huge fan either. I remember it being one of those books that you kind of had to read in high school that you kind of always saw in the school library and that you just kind of resented for that reason. Like it was one of those everybody has to read it books and I just not a good one. Not one that rose above being an everyone has to read it, but being it was kind of a little bit obnoxious and um, overwritten. It struck and me as, yeah, very overwritten lots of and weird cheesy. Metaphors and and I wanted to give it more credit and say, well, maybe the readers were just the reader was just reading it stupidly but the reader on your audiobook yeah yeah because you you know the reader on your audiobook especially if you've ever used librivox mm-hmm. can, can really oh, yeah. color and, and spoil a, a great book for you maybe like having forrest gump read it to you or something <laughs> <laughs> right so <laughs> right I, th- I actually think this came from the probably the public library because i think amanda was just sort of going and picking out books for me from the public library. Oh, so I would have that might be interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It probably had a list of like classic books that I either skipped in high school or just had never read or whatever. And, right. But yeah, I wasn't I wasn't impressed by it. And I know that our listeners that are huge Ray, Ray Bradbury fans who think Fahrenheit 451 is the best book ever, one of their favorite books. And I don't know what to say to you except I'm sorry. It's just I thought it was really cheesy and overwrought. When oh, I listen to it. Maybe we'll talk about this more during Baggage. I, what's that? The Mechanical Hound. The Mechanical Hound. And there's this whole scene where his wife is hooked up to like machines because she's OD'd. And it's like, the snakes were running up her arm. I mean, it's like, well, there's a lot of that kind of stuff in, in Something Wicked. But really yeah, Well, we have to talk about, too, I mean, yeah. we'll talk about this in talking about this book. It's sort of a one of the those prototypical dystopian type things that, you know, lots of people have imitated since and i don't know what exactly came before it but something wicked this way comes is a book that there are millions of imitations out there but i think we're all probably going to agree that it sure holds up and stands the test of time but you you want to give something like fahrenheit 451 that was innovative or sure knew the credit of at least inspiring things that ended up being better yeah i don't want to make any definitive statements about the book because it's been too long right since i've read it it might be great i just yeah, this would have been probably fifteen, liked it. Yeah. ten to fifteen years ago for me since I've since I've read it and a lot of wonder, water under the bridge since then. So yeah, right. we'll have to revisit it. Right? Yeah, maybe so. I think we should call it Scarenheit four fifty one. Didn't predict that, did you? No, I guess I always one step ahead, death ahead. Nah, There's still some great ideas in that. In that yeah, book. there is the one whole ending scene. of the book is beautiful. the ending is I think a really well, creative, that's what I was about. clever idea. Where yeah. Everybody has memorized. Yeah, that's books. right. They become that's a awesome. carrier for that book. That's a great idea. There's also Radbury always has these great images, and if something wicked is full of them. I'm just going to call it something wicked. Sounds a little pretentious somehow, but um, I don't feel wicked. like something wicked. That. Something. Something wicked. Something wicked. This way come. S W T W C. There's this scene. The S W T W C. We like our acronyms here. Mister Mister Fahrenheit's wife has been watching her TV the whole time and the whole thing. It's like, you know, she's obsessed with the image and she's watching the TV and all this kind of stuff. And her building gets blown up by terror. I don't remember exactly what happens, but she dies. And there's this wonderful image. I can just imagine it. I still remember it from Fahrenheit 451 where, you know, she's this completely soulless woman that just like spends all her time basically watching images watching tv you know it's a satire of obviously what bradbury saw worse bradbury saw the world was heading at the time and i just remember this this uh really powerful moment right before she dies where her building basically gets blown up i think and the power goes out and there's just the split second before the rubble comes down on her before she dies where suddenly the power goes out and she sees her own reflection. She's reflected and that's right. The TV dies and suddenly there's no more images and she just sees herself. She sees her own emptiness. She sees the hollowness in her eyes. And then suddenly all this rubble comes <laughs> raining down on her. And it's a beautiful, I mean, only Ray Bradbury by if Ray Bradbury was ever, ever sucked, which I would argue he probably did. It was only because he was always swinging for the swinging fences. For the fences. Sometimes he just hit it out of the park. And that one's always stuck with me. Anyway, I'm sorry. We've interrupted your context. This is me. great. But, um, okay, so um, we've talked um, about coincidence. Right. <laughs> it's kind of hard as I was trying to think of what category to put his novel into. Um, he, he's known for he writes a lot of science fiction. Mm-hmm. But he himself said he wasn't really a science fiction writer. Where is that quote? Yeah, to this day, you are described as a science fiction writer by many. Why did you hate this label? Why did you write so many science fiction stories in the 50s? Well, the term science fiction is inaccurate. I am not a science fiction writer. I am a fantasy writer. But that label got put on me and stuck. So he saw himself as a fantasy writer. He didn't see himself as a science fiction writer, which is interesting because I do think he was a science fiction writer as well. Well, what he would say, I think, is that he was never interested in the hardware. 
Yeah. I think that's the distinction he would make is that he didn't care about how the spaceship got there. He didn't care about how anything worked. He's much more of a Star Wars guy probably than a Star Trek guy. If yeah. you had, That's probably the easiest way for us to understand it is he's much more interested in the story that's being told and the themes that are being explored than he is in any of the minutia of what you might think about science fiction as doing, you know, of real speculative fiction that's about like what would happen if Matt Damon went to Mars and then he had to survive there and there's a certain school of hard sci-fi that people some people would say that's true sci-fi. Maybe Bradbury would say that's by that standard. Bradbury, he was writing morality tales. He was writing fantastical fiction. Mars was just a weird place where crazy, creepy things could happen. It wasn't, you know, he didn't care what the real Mars was like. So maybe that's, uh, I mean, by his definition, C.S. Lewis, that hideous strength would be more of a fantasist. A lot of stuff that we call sci-fi would be fantasist, but I could see the argument for his definition. I see mm. it, yeah. <laughs> it's just interesting to see that he did not see himself as a science fiction writer. Right. And that it's difficult to put his work into a category. I know the broad umbrella term for it is speculative fiction. Right. Which contains a lot of different things. It's just narratives that deal with speculation about things that could be. So right. fantasy falls into that. Science fiction falls into that. And um, whether he's one or the other, I guess, is up for debate. He did not see himself as a science fiction writer. Right. It's a handy place so. to put his books in the bookstore. I mean, I yeah. think that's about who cares what the label is, really. But um, Just a few last details about him. He was raised a Baptist, but he did not see himself as a Christian, though he did see himself as religious. So he saw, he's, I think he made some sort of point in an interview that I saw that his career wouldn't have gotten where it was had it not been for the hand of something he didn't he couldn't understand or see. So that was his stance towards God. But he was also, as far as writers go, fairly decent man. He was married to one woman for his entire life until she died, and they had four daughters together. And from what I understand, they had a fairly happy home life. So. It's like one of our only writers that feels like every other episode you're telling us about lurid affairs and yeah. stuff like that. But No adultery as far as we know. I mean, It's always nice to hear. Yeah. So, any things you guys wanted to add, add about him? Uh, the only the only thing I would emphasize in what you just said is I think it is interesting that he grew up in Hollywood. I think it's interesting that he said King Kong was one of his favorite movies. He loved big, splashy sci-fi. He loved Ray Harry Harryhausen, which if you don't know how who he is, he's the guy that did all those claymation movies like Simbad and um, what's the famous one, Jason and the Argonauts, whether the skeletons are fighting the guy, all that stuff. I'm sure you guys have seen some of it, mm-hmm. but um, he loved that kind of stuff. He's a very, and I think you can arg- make a good argument that he's a very cinematic writer. You know, I mean, he's a, he's a very writerly writer and that he likes metaphors. He likes to pour on the style, but he also likes a good image and you can definitely, you can definitely see the influence of Hollywood in his work. You know, he's, a, he's also a very referential writer. He's always full of references to things and stuff. Something Wicked is uh, chock full of books and things that he enjoyed and pamphlets and everything else that he obviously liked. So um, he's, he's in some sense, perhaps, uh, this is going to sound pretentious, but maybe he's something of a postmodern and that he he's drinking in all this stuff and then he's regurgitating it, putting it through his own filter and kind of spitting it back out and in a different form. He's definitely making use of, you know, I mean, there's works of his that make specific reference to Edgar Allan Poe. The stuff that he likes tends to shine through very, very vividly in his works. Yeah, there are allegorical references throughout this. Yeah, absolutely. The one that I noticed the most, I guess we'll talk about it, but he keeps referencing peaches. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a nod to Augustine, right? When he stole the peaches. Hmm. So yeah. you keep talking about peach trees and going and stealing people's peaches. And yeah, it's always yeah, tied yeah, to temptation yeah. and right. stuff. And Ray Bradbury, I don't know whether that was an Augusta nod or all, but, but I imagine not, it has to be. I mean, it's a famous. I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised. Ray Bradbury is definitely the kind of guy that would be like, oh, Augustine peaches. Yeah, I'll, I'll steal that. <clears throat> well, that's an, a good segue into just a brief di- discussion of the history of the book here. Mm-hmm. It actually, it started as <clears throat> it was inspired by Gene. He was good friends with Gene Kelly. And in fact, <clears throat> everybody knows, I guess everyone knows who Gene Kelly was. He's the guy who dances in. He's, a, he's the, the hero, of the protagonist of Singing in the Rain, yeah. famous dancer. Which he's, actually, I've got here. What kind of movies do you like to watch? This Fred or Gene? Nathan? Fred or Gene? Fred, or Gene? Fred, totally, all the way. Hate Gene, love Fred. You hate Gene? Yeah. Uh, I like Gene. Better than Fred? Yeah, probably. I don't know many Freds. Or as I like to call him, dead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, to or, be fair, I don't know if I have ever seen a Fred Astaire movie. Well, well if you did, then you'd be like, why have I been wasting my life with Singing in the Pain? Because I've seen Singing in the Rain, and I've seen... His other white, white Christmas or whatever that is. Is that yeah. Gene Kelly? No, that's nobody. That's Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye. No, no, never mind then. <laughs> I don't know musicals. I'm sorry. Blight Christmas. I know. 
to my wife's shame i don't know musicals <laughs> to your to knife's you. shame <laughs> knife's, that's, i thought you were gonna say something <laughs> so here's an interview um yeah. what kind of movies do you like to watch all kinds a lot of hitchcock movies i saw rebecca the other night a hitchcock movie terrific i was watching singing in the rain with gene kelly a science fiction musical which came out 50 years ago <laughs> so i love all kinds he saw Singing in the Rain as a science fiction because it showed, I think, the beginning is in silence, silent movies, right? Mm-hmm. And then the whole um, tension is the move to talkies. Right. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a new technology coming and taking over. Yeah, so that was a fun little aside. But he, this was inspired by Gene Kelly. He and his wife became very good friends with Gene Kelly. And he tried to get the early prototype for what would become Something Wicked This Way Comes made into a movie and Gene Kelly was actually going to direct it. And he took the screenplay and he, this is all as told in the afterward to our book here. Right. So if you have this edition, which I think most of you probably do, I think it's the one. Unless you paid like three or four times as much for it. Unless you paid three or four times as much for it or found it at an old bookshop. That's mm-hmm. right. So you've got a... Or had it on hand from... Through the Avon books. Is that what that is? Yeah. Avon. It's got a brief afterward where he tells Harper. this story. It's a cool story. You can mm-hmm. go and read it. Gene Kelly tried to shop the screenplay around a bit, didn't get anybody to take it. And so Bradbury took that screenplay and made it into, after a few years of working the um, style and the text a bit to make it the dense weirdness that it is. Um, <laughs> yeah, he turned it into something wicked this way comes. Mm-hmm. So it was published in 1962, right around the time we were having, a, a, like you said, the birth of this postmodern movement. Puts him in an in- interesting position in relation to it because he's also in the tradition of kind of a- Isaac Asimov and these other guys who were the s- science fiction writers at the time. But I had never really thought of him. I guess I should have. I hadn't thought of him in context of the postmoderns that were coming around at the time. So Samuel Beckett was writing at the time. Mm-hmm. He would have had, he would have kind of been in the middle of his career. I'm not sure that he had much of an influence, but O'Connor had just died. Right. So a lot of these writers that were seeing success and seeing their careers take off in a similar manner to his, but we can get there in just a minute. The book, as we said, it's heavily allegorical. And also just another interesting point is we mentioned that we thought it might, and in fact it did, have an influence on Stephen King. This is one of his favorite books. And I think he describes it as a direct predis- or a direct influence on it. Yes. yes but it's, you can see that. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Not at all. I mean, I think you can see that there. You can see it in things like Stranger Things, the new phenomenon that's out right now. Oh, sure. Which is just a ripoff of Stephen King and um, Steven Spielberg. Well, Stephen King wrote dozens of novels about ancient evil invading small towns, which yeah. something wicked this way comes is one of the one of the quintessential best of the of those kinds of novels. So yeah, but it's just it's. What every good book does, it takes a setting that you're familiar with. In America at the time, it was this new small town suburbia that was coming into existence. And you take it and you present this old evil that comes into it. And it's fantastic. It's Mm -hmm. a good formula and it works here for sure. I think we briefly mentioned this, but this book is set in Greentown, which is based on the town he grew up in. Dandelion Wine is seen as a direct predecessor to it. This is the autumnal setting and Dandelion Wine is spring. Even though he did not see himself as a science fiction writer, I think it is interesting to position him within the history of science fiction. Oh, sure. It's obviously in that history. Yeah. Like the detective novel, science fiction has its roots in earlier mishmash of traditions. Right. And then eventually it has these kind of um, central figures who found it. And they are, you look back to them as the fathers of this genre. And so we saw that with detective novels, you had here and there bits and pieces of it coming until finally you had Conan Doyle who kind of put the stamp on it and this now was a genre. And so with science fiction, you had all these different sorts of roots. You had fantasy, fable, medieval romance, all these things. So you had Chaucer's, some of the medieval romance. Um, you had theories of planets and mm-hmm. stars and all this weirdness, the melancholy theories of the Middle Ages, all these things that would get wrapped up into poetry and into fables and into stories that were um, just weird and had to deal with either the otherworldly or they had to deal with machinery. So you see some of this in things like Mort D'Arthur. Right especially with the weird, the Grail stories. Right. Chaucer has a few stories that are a little bit science fiction-y. You see a lot of this with scientists who are trying to propound their theories of propound, uh, whatever. We're trying, attempting to, to propound. Attempting to propound their, their theories. theories of the spheres and how the spheres... Their theories. Their theories. Ooh, mm-hmm. Of the fears. <laughs> 
They're theories of the fears. Yep. And these other metaphysical theories of the stars and the planets rotating around one another. Metaphysical. Metaphysical. Yeah. Um, and you also see some of these weird scientific scientific fantasies and uh, flights of fancy and reason, even in works of men such as Leonardo da Vinci. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Where a lot of his drawings are these weird things that may or may not have ever even been intended to work, mm-hmm. but they definitely were flights of imagination based on science. Sprites of imagination. Sprites of imagination. Based on diets. <laughs> oh, boy, this is... <laughs> um, can't beat them, join them. That's... <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, if you can't bleed them. So, so we have Leonardo da Vinci. He's right in the middle of the Renaissance and leading into what we call the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason. Yeah, we learned about this in the uh, Agatha Christie. Nobody could even read books or... Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> people learned how to read. That reasoning. was one of the very first things that and happened. And then human reason took yeah. off around, uh, I think, like the 15, 1600s. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so with that came an interest in science, <laughs> but in science as we think of now, where it's uh, very mechanical, very theory-based, very observation-based. And so you had even astronomers like, I had no idea. Thanks to Wikipedia, now I know. I'm going to keep rubbing that in. Wicked. <laughs> Wicked. Diablidia. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Johannes Kepler. It gets better, funnier every time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Johannes Kepler, he wrote a book called Somnium. There we go. Where a boy and his mother learn of an imagine, imaginary island based on the moon from a demon. <laughs> there you go. So, and a lot of people look back on that as this, the founding document of science fiction. Mm-hmm. It was actually fiction-based, and it was, but it was science. It was meant to teach you about science. And so, some of the other books that you would have that would qualify The Tempest apparently qualifies. There you go. Utopia by Thomas More qualifies. Gulliver's Travels tol- qualifies. I, I, at least I would argue it would. Oh, sure. There's floating islands. And floating islands. And the people. Whole, and yeah. Talking horses. Talking horses. That yeah. is the weirdest part. I always yeah, forget about very the strange for our, then once I get Once we get past the Lilliputians or whatever they're called, that yeah, book I always, whenever really I, weird. I always feel like I've smoked something when I read that book because <laughs> that is a weird book. Exactly. And how many times have you read that book? Uh, a few books. A few times. A few times. A few. Yeah. And a few books. <laughs> a few books. Yeah. I read it a few times and let me tell you, it's not a book for uh, young people to read. Not at all. It is very, it's a dirty book. The Halloween version, so, by pe- the way, Scullivers. Scullivers. Gravels. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay. <laughs> so uh, what you see with science fiction is what would become science fiction. It's now taking on this... First, it deals with the strange and the weird. It also has kind of political undertones, or at least moral undertones. And you see a lot of this with what will become dystopian fiction later on, especially. So, um, <laughs> die, dystopian. <laughs> I'm going to literally lay down in the middle of the floor and go to sleep. <laughs> But it was also in its early stages, so it was closely also linked with fantasy, which you slowly see the argument I'm building is that it's they're all kind of the same thing. Mm. It's also closely linked with another form that was growing at the time. Can you guess? Uh, that's where you get the... It's October. Horror. Yeah. It was also closely linked with horror. And so one of the earliest novels that we have that people point to as both one of the early founding science fiction texts and one of the early founding horror text is Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. And it kind of is both, right? It's both science fiction and it's horror. And so so from its earliest stages, science fiction has always been kind of a melting pot, sure. closely linked with fantasy, closely linked with uh, horror. And we, we get actually what we know as modern science fiction, where it has its particular cast of things that happen and is actually not quite what Ray Bradbury is doing. We get those with uh, Jules Verne, and H.G. Wells, who were both mid-19th century writers. You know, they were dealing with... H.G. Wells was very concerned with politics. Verne was very concerned with just sort of the imagination and the actual technology in the book that was happening. But that's where we start to get stories that deal with either outer space or they deal with some sort of machinery that allows you to explore the world, right? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of science. That's its own little category of science fiction, which I think when people think of science fiction and what Ray Bradbury was probably thinking when he said he wasn't a science fiction writer, that's kind of what we think of as science Yeah, the Star Trek kind of. Yeah, Star Trek, exactly. And that's, I mean, so like we've talked about briefly that you had in the 20s, the onset of this pulp magazine tradition. And actually it's not that, come to think of it, it's not actually that, it's not like in the 20s, this is just something that started happening. Dickens 
had novels. I mean, Dickens had uh, monthly, quarterly publications where he would publish his stories. And so it just it was just a phenomenon of cheap, easy printing, that you would have these cheap pamphlets and stuff where people would publish their stories and they would be easily accessible so that people could go and buy these things and authors could widely publish either their fanzines, like you see here in Bloomington. We've got, what's that stupid bookstore? Boxcar Books. Mm. I'm sure we don't have any Boxcar Books fans, but if you do, then... Whatever. Sorry, boxcar get over books it. fans. Yeah, stop going to boxcar books because you just go in there and it's pathetic. Because you have these people who have published their little Marxist pamphlets, like they're going to change the world, and maybe one of them will be found by Truman Capote on a slush pile. Sure, eventually, but odds are you're not. It's like everybody who tries to write, you know, a blog or something. But Ray Bradbury wrote for these new pulp magazines that were coming out. And I guess what was new about them was that they were dedicated to these sort of science fiction. Yeah, writers. or even to do a, there were a lot of, I think, since the 1800s, we've had pulp magazines in the sense of magazines printed on cheap, pulpy paper. And Dickens would have certainly written. Dickens had his own. I forget what it was called. What was Dickens' personal? He had his own personal magazine that he, he had published several. his own stuff and yeah. Wilkie Collins and stuff in. But what, what begins to happen when we say pulp, and when you think about a movie like Pulp Fiction, which is based on old pulp stories, what people usually mean is the stuff that kind of came out in between the two world wars from about 1920 to in about 1940, yep. with some spillover in both directions. But that's going to be stuff like Astounding Tales magazine, Weird Tales magazine sounding science fiction sounding science detective magazine and these were magazines dedicated to specific genres generally marketed to men they're about 120 pages or so of fast moving action-packed stories usually the cover would have some damsel in distress tied up with their clothes falling off kind of stuff Real, some big muscular guy some big muscular guy wrestling an alligator or yeah. you know some cultist about to sacrifice again a beautiful lady and they, they like their beautiful ladies in uh, stages of undress because i guess then as now that sold uh, that sold magazines but that's what we kind of think of when we think of pulp but well one of the magazines though in 1937 astounding science fiction mm -hmm. because of its editor john campbell kind of started to get some respectability and so they were the ones that were this was the one that was publishing early works by guys like isaac asimov arthur c clark robert heinlein mm -hmm. and these guys are ones that bradbury would be reading sure. and admiring and trying to be and so you had this birth of it kind of in the 20s where it became the sort of cheesy stuff that would now, now we're very nostalgic for. And you get some good stuff out of that, like The Iron Giant. Sure. Which is a good movie. Yeah. So fantastic movie. Well, I mean, Spielberg and Lucas and all those guys have made t careers out of repurposing that stuff, modernizing it a little bit, contemporizing it. And, and making it good. And making it good. Yeah. yeah. Adding, like, hire some good screenwriters, hire some good actors to bring this pulp material to I mean, life. Just, as a cultural moment here for us, I mean, it's because of these pulp stories and the wide availability, and they're particularly targeting these sort of um, childish attributes of men that you get the birth of comic books. Oh, sure. Ray Bradbury actually wrote for the comic books. He wrote for uh, Tales from the Crypt magazine, Vault of Horror, all those old... I actually, matter of fact... And like we said, I mean, people are now repurposing comic books into really good movies as well. So. Just for fun. I, uh, this, this, this won't translate over... Uh, podcast, but maybe I'll include some pictures or something. Folks, I've got a copy of The Vault of Horror, an anthology of the old comics, and uh, here we go. Mr. Ray Bradbury has his own little bio huh. in there. He uh, was very, this is actually this is actually what would have been appeared, like this is just an old a compilation of comics from the 1950s that huh. Ray Bradbury wrote for. Uh, he says, uh, this is an entirely new experience for me, and I can't tell you enough how much I appreciate the painstaking detail and thought you were putting into your efforts. It seems to me that again and again you achieve the exactly right atmosphere and angle in carrying out the story. Well, I don't know, that's Probably not interesting for our listeners at all, but uh, if you, like me, had a copy of, what is this, The Vault of Horror, issues number 32 through 40 or something like that, you'd see that there were many Ray Bradbury stories printed in there. A guy with an axe in his head on the front. There is also a guy with an axe in his head on the front. They like their lurid illustrations then, then as now. There you go, Jake, guy with axe in head. Lots of wonderful pictures in this. Not how I would have done it. Not how you would have done it? <laughs> Well, you would have done it very well, silent. Would have been very silent. <laughs> this guy, this guy, this yellow guy here, does not look like he's being silent at all. I'm just gonna lean right into this yeah. one. <laughs> Where? I'm pretty sure that's, that's what Jake looks like, right? Oh my goodness! Yeah, wow. These comics were responsible for uh, the comics code and uh, lots of good comics being banned uh, because uh, 
parents decided they didn't like that kind of stuff, actually. They but, didn't want uh, to see somebody with their head <laughs> split open. No, somehow, somehow they thought that wasn't too edifying for their kids, but uh, more like scarants. Well, the last thing I was going to say is just a brief note about his style. I don't know what to say about his style, but I do know that... I've, I've, I'll just I'll end on this quote right here. I, I think it sums it all up. Well, no, but it does get, <laughs> get in something that I think. Right. I wrote a long poem a few years ago about taking a journey across England. This is Ray Bradbury talking yeah, now, yeah, right? Not Brady <laughs> Jesse. <laughs> 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 I'm like, all right, guys, let me tell you all about Ray Bradbury. <laughs> I wrote a long poem about Ray, as I like to call him. <laughs> right. <laughs> It's about taking a journey across England to Land's End, and I said to myself, who would I want to take on such a journey late at night and just sit up all night and listen to them and not say a word myself? This first one's interesting. I've had Rudyard Kipling Mm -hmm. and Aldous Huxley Mm -hmm. and Edgar Allan Poe and Herman Melville and... William Shakespeare. Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens. Brandon, what score for Brandon? Brandon loves the Dickens. I do, and I think, and I'll try to parse this. You have to try for that pun. Well... (sighs) I think that there's a lot of similarities between Dickens and Bradbury, and I've tried to parse it out, but we can get to that later. You'll get a chance to make that argument later in yeah. the program. All right. That's all I got. That's all I... If, let me see if there was anything else I really wanted to say about... Uh, no, I think the pulp magazines are... Inter- I'll, I'll give you real, super quick dev, uh, history of where I think Bradbury stands within the tradition of weird fiction and speculative fiction, on as Brandon was calling it. Specifically horror. So you got your Edgar Allan Poe. He's really important, right? You guys ever heard of Edgar Allan Poe? I have. Just a little bit. All right, Edgar Allan Poe, he brings psychological realism. You're like three feet from the mic, man. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> Just a little bit, yeah. <laughs> it's important to get after that. So you got your Edgar Allan Poe. He basically creates the modern horror story. He brings all kinds of psychological realism. But Edgar Allan Poe, he's in the past, man. All his stories are kind of have this vague, even when they're set in Maine, they have this really kind of European-ish flavor. Like, this is like a scat it. poem. Yeah, you keep doing your hands like this. So yeah. I drop a beat for you. Uh, Figured so, I'd drop a beat for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so 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 you got Edgar, you got all the go- the old gothic stuff and Radcliffe. What's the name of the guy that wrote the Monk? You got all these gothic stories that happen in castles and stuff like that with uh, European noblemen that are, have dark secrets and stuff like that. Then you got your Edgar Allan Poe, and he brings some psychological depth and realism to it. Uh, then you got all these guys in the 20th century. And I think what a lot of them did, I would argue, is they found a way to contemporize it. They realized that the best kind of horror, the horror that was going to strike uh, closest to our hearts would be homegrown, that it would be much more creepy not to think about the fact that if I ever went to Transylvania, maybe I'd had my blood drinking by uh, some count. But the idea that in the everyday, you know, the stuff, the kind of stuff that Stephen King have, has made hay with ever since. So I would argue, like with Agatha Christie, we have the Agatha Christie, all her stuff takes place in these weird old mansions, you know, and stuff like that. But then you have the pulp detective stories, which really bring it into the modern city, add modern style violence and modern style dialogue and modern style this and that, and really uh, give it a contemporary flavor that brings it to life, that makes you feel the hard hittingness of the violence a lot more, that makes it not just feel like a game of clues suddenly have murder that feels like a murder that you might read about in the newspaper or that might even happen that you might be aware of of something that might happen to you horror same thing and in, in, in weird tales magazine and a lot you know they're still playing with all the same vampires and uh mummies and all that kind of stuff a lot of those weird tale stories are really silly and terrible in those in that old pulp magazine um but a lot of them ask the question that uh, I think a lot of good 20th century speculative fiction writers happened, which is asked, which is what would happen if we brought it into small town American life. And Bradware is the master of that. And I he wrote for The Twilight Zone, which Jake's been enjoying lately, I happen to know. Yeah, I don't know what to say about that. But um, <laughs> but if you look at... Well, the, the, the reason I was actually... I even bothered was because you had told me that he wrote for the Twilight Zone and had some free time the other uh, last couple of nights. To it's on Netflix, right. so I watched I've watched a couple of episodes. Well, so if you I've uh, heard they're good, some of them oh. are yeah, they're fantastic. The Daylight Zone, as I like to call it. <laughs> Boo! <laughs> That's a scary ghost. Boo noise. Um. <laughs> always win. <laughs> yes, obviously all good horror. Like if you look at an old fairy tale, I think Chesterton, the beloved Chesterton, we find a way to bring him up on every episode. Chesterton, I think makes the point somewhere that fairy tales were set 
maybe it was Lewis. It's Lewis actually that makes the point that fairy tales aren't fairy tales to people who read them, who read them when they were written. When you when when fairy tales were first composed, they were stories of people who were going about their mundane everyday business, and suddenly a witch came, or a ghost, or a goblin, or somebody, a wizard, to offer them wishes. When we read them now, though, it seems like it's all part of a foreign world. You know, we don't have woodcutters and woodcutters' daughters, and so it just feels all very uh, fairy tale-ish, for lack of a better word. But fairy tales were in fact stories of the supernatural invading the mundane, which is, I think, what got lost a little bit with the Gothic tradition, with the Victorian ghost stories and horror stories, which were all pretty elaborate, kind of European, kind of like out there, kind of other kind of you you couldn't imagine. I mean, Dracula, you could argue he comes to England, I guess, and then gets defeated by science and good hearted British, you know, pluck and can do attitude. But but even there, it's like if you want to avoid Dracula, you just don't go to Transylvania, really. It's the thing to, you know, whereas guys like Stephen King, most famously, have made great hay out of saying what what would happen if Dracula came to Bloomington, Indiana, where the three of us live. What would happen if uh, that's what Stranger Things is about? Although I've only seen two episodes, I assume that's what Stranger Things is about. Is what would happen if some '80s kids that played Dungeons and Dragons and stuff, just like you and me? What if what if a little supernatural girl with psychic powers came into their lives and then Lovecraftian monsters? What would and Spielberg and Lucas? They've they've made a lot of hay with that kind of thing. But I think that's that's where Bradbury belongs, along with a lot of the guys like Oh, I would like to be able to name drop it some of them but i can't charles matt what is his name i forget there's a number of gentlemen that wrote for twilight zone and also wrote great pulp stories some of which have endured and a lot of their stories are about that kind of thing about what would happen if some of this gothic these gothic tropes came to came to our fair american shores and so that's where i think bradbury belongs thanks for listening everybody good night good night The Booketing Today was written by Nathan Alberson and performed by Nathan Alberson, Brandon Chastfiend, and Jake Mentzkiller. He kills in silence. Yeah, uh, Jake, uh, what kind of fine stuff should our uh, fans be looking out for or doing or stuff these now? that they know who wrote this podcast and who performed in it. Right now, we are in the middle of a Kickstarter campaign for My Soul Among Lions. That's right. They're kickstarting Volume 3 in their uh, series of putting all 150 psalms to music. So go visit and give and support and push us over the edge so we can produce Volume 3 in our Psalter project. There is something a little spooky about Die Skull Among Lions. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. (laughs) 